Father God, we come on this uh, night and we just thank you for the opportunity uh, to be together and we acknowledge that it can be taken for granted, the opportunity to get together and to truly be in this space that is comfortable and controlled by temperature and we just pray, Lord, that we wouldn't get comfortable with our relationship with you and that we would seek your guidance and the movement of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And as we look at this passage tonight, that you would be speaking directly to us about what it is that you would have us do uh, as a result of the truth from these two chapters and the life of Stephen and his commitment to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Uh, Acts chapter 6 and 7. Um, I felt really bad yesterday um, on uh, Bible Baffle. Phil teed us up with an Acts question, and no one got it right. And I almost called in. Wyatt knew the answer. I knew the answer. I just won a few weeks ago, so I don't want to always call in and win. I have had my kids call in before with my answer, so we just kind of mix it up. Um, Yeah. So uh, here we are as I continue to stall. What was the question? Uh, Who who is the uh, only person in the New Testament who was freed from jail? And of course, everyone immediately calls in, I'm assuming, because that's what Mr. Phil said. Lots of answers for Paul. And if you uh, are aware of the story, when Paul is in prison, they are uh, released from their chains, but they don't actually leave the prison cell because they're afraid that the jailer is going to kill himself. And so they stay inside and they're free in the prison cell. But Peter uh, and the others are freed from prison and brought out into the square to show the power of God and him being able to free them from prison. So that's coming up in like a few weeks. So, yeah. That was the uh, passage. And then this morning's, I definitely had no idea. So I didn't call in. All right, so Acts chapter uh, 6. Now, in these days, uh, when the disciples were increasing in number, um, so one of the questions that, that we've had, that I've had in my own mind, and that we've um, been asking is, when exactly are we talking about in relation to Pentecost? Because Luke is giving us some generic references, like in these days, um, and we don't know exactly where we're at um, from Pentecost, but... It's been a while. When the disciples were increasing in number, um, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from you, among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty." But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochurus, and Nicanor, 
and Timon and Perminus and Nicholas and a proselyte of Antioch. That was Nicholas. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So we see this word right out of the gate uh, when the disciples, and this is when we start to first see this reference to um, disciples. Now last week we saw the first reference to the church and now here we get the first reference and multiple references to what is a uh, disciple or who are the disciples. Now when we look at that um, word in the Greek, it means a learner or an apprentice. So a learner or an apprentice. So when we talk about we are disciples of Jesus Christ, that means we are learners or apprentices of Christ. So if we aren't actively engaged in learning and in apprenticeship under Jesus, then we have no business referring to ourselves as disciples. The whole idea of the word disciple is someone who is actively seeking to learn and to grow in their understanding of the teacher. Obviously, within the ancient Near Eastern world at that time, um, many priests would have or um, teachers would have their disciples and they would follow them around and learn from them. And so we're seeing these 12 be referred to as disciples or as apprentices of Jesus. And I'm fully aware that it's a little bit like preaching to the choir as all of you are like, that's why we're here. So um, Golf clap for all of us for being here as disciples, fully embracing what that word is. So we see the the disciples were increasing in number. A a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So we see two different groups um, of Christ followers or followers of the way. The Hellenists, which are the Greek folks, or the Jews who had been dispersed uh, from Jerusalem and sent out away, exiled away from Jerusalem, adopted, in essence, the Greek lifestyle or the Greek culture, or they are Greek converts to Judaism and now to Christianity. So those are the Hellenists. And then we have the Hebrew folks, or the true, authentic Jewish people. And you see some infighting. Now, last week, Tom referenced, um, was quoting John Stott in his commentary, and Stott talks about three different ways that we see Satan trying to undermine uh, the value or the effectiveness of the church. And the third way is through infighting or squabbling. So, in essence, we have these two different groups that are two different cultural identities that are together as one church, but they're having some issues. And we're like, thank the Lord that we're basically a monocultural church. (laughs) Okay, not funny. Um, We really don't get it because our cultural differences that often we engage with here is 
the small select few that choose to raise their hand and the masses that choose not to raise their hands. And, and so when we talk about this division, we really don't have a firm understanding of what this would look like. It is um, some, some hard cultural differences between these groups, and Satan is trying to use their cultural differences as a way to divide them. Now, if we look out larger at the um, larger church, certainly we see this happen all the time within cultural variants of Christianity where we say, well, if you want to be a true follower of Christ, then you should follow our culture, and there is some challenges with that. Last year, um, the, the Word and the Pulse, one of their, their summer thing was with, um, what was the name of the group, the Native American group? Eagle's Wings or something? Yeah. Yeah, so um, I've been reading this book, um, Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys, and one of the big things that the Native American follower of Christ talks about is the cultural divide that existed between missionaries and the Native Americans, and it was you can't be who you are in your culture. You have to relinquish your culture in order to be a disciple of Jesus. And we see these significant cultural wars that have existed and divided the church. And so here, early on in the infancy of the church, we have this cultural divide that comes up that could be a massive problem. And it's around who is getting the food or who is getting the resources that they need. And as many of us probably know, and even if we don't, uh, we could infer, back in the day, back in the ancient Near Eastern world, if you were a widow, you really didn't have any money because your husband would have had the money. Your husband is no longer alive, thus the name widow or the title widow. And so you are dependent on the church. And so this group of widows is being neglected, which is a huge thing. Because we see all throughout Scripture the importance of caring for the orphan and the widow. And so if the widows or those who are in need, the most vulnerable people of that society or of that culture are not being taken care of, then there is a problem in the church. And that extends to today. If we aren't taking care of the most vulnerable people, we have a problem. Especially if that problem is based around cultural differences. We, in essence, look the other way because they aren't of our culture, and so if they aren't getting what they need, that's not our problem, that's their problem. So the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And we have this interesting thing going on that happens on a very regular basis. Um, the people of the church come to the leaders of the church and they say, we have a need that's not being met. Um, it's your job to meet this need. I'm sure um, none of you have ever felt this way uh, about Timberwood. You've never thought, if only the staff would provide us with fill-in-the-blank ministry, then our needs as a church would be met. You've never felt that way. I know that. Because you would have told me and... Never mind. That's what's going on, and the disciples have this challenge because it's not that they don't like to serve food. It's that they 
their whole goal, their whole ministry is focused on the preaching of the Word. The disciples, the twelve, are the teachers of the way, the teachers of Christ's teaching. And they realize that if they get bogged down in the teaching or in the serving of the tables, they say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. And we have this interesting thing going on where we start to um, rank what ministry is. And so we say, well, Eric, what ministry is is what you do. You get paid to do ministry. And unfortunately, we have professionalized, semi-professionalized ministry. That was supposed to be a joke. Like, I'm not a pro, obviously. But we have said, I don't do ministry, I have another job. And so what we need to get back to is to acknowledging that each one of us has a ministry or ministries that we are to be engaged in. And there is a difference between volunteering and ministering. So ministering is doing something for someone else to further advance the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Volunteering is serving a need that exists without Jesus. There's a lot of volunteer opportunities that exist that have nothing to do with advancing the kingdom of God. And there are a lot of people that volunteer without seeking to advance the kingdom of God. Where the challenge meets is, if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and I'm volunteering, then I'm ministering. If I am a disciple, an apprentice of Jesus Christ, and I am serving in a capacity, my desire should be the advancement of the kingdom of God and the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, everything that I do is ministry. So tomorrow, my mowing guys, our mowing guys, are going to come and cut the grass. And for the longest time, we say they're going to come and volunteer. No, they're going to come and do some grass ministry. And no, we don't live in Colorado. (laughs) They're going to do some ministry that involves cutting the lawn here at Timberwood Church. Likewise, the the group of uh, ladies that take care of the flowers came and did some ministry as they ripped out all of the annuals that are going to freeze to death in the first polar vortex of the season. On Friday, when the folks come to do coffee ministry, I mean cleaning ministry, is that unfair? <laughs> uh, when, when, right, sure. When we do ministry, it is to advance the kingdom of God, and for somehow we have determined that ministry is what takes place here on this stage. with the youth, with children, in a foreign country, when we put on our hat that says, I'm a uh, Christian minister. But what we have to think back to is everything that we're doing 
should be to advance the kingdom of God, which is, in fact, ministry. There is no such thing as professional ministry. There is vocational ministry in which your job of ministry pays you money, but that is not professional ministry. And each one of us has a call to minister to others where we are at. And so we see this interesting discussion about the importance of spreading out this ministry of uh, disbursement of food. Again, they say it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, there's this, this challenging thing that exists is people that volunteer, volunteer more. You're like, that is about one of the most ridiculous statements. Obviously, people that volunteer, volunteer more. No, it's that people that volunteer will volunteer for a lot of things. And so I could come up with a list of of people that if I called them, they would volunteer no matter what is going on in their lives and to a fault. But part of this thing called volunteer ministry or ministering is sometimes we have to say no to a ministry opportunity for two reasons. One, so that we can concentrate our efforts and our energy on other ministries that we're already involved in, and also to provide an opportunity for someone else to fill that void that we leave open. So, for example, I am very capable of pulling out all the dead dead annuals or soon-to-be-dead annuals. I'm very able to mow the grass here at Timberwood Church. I've done it many times. And at one point, I was a professional mower. What is going on tonight? I understand we're going to get 27 inches of snow and winter's coming and we're all sad because the twins, they are terrible in the postseason. But we can laugh. We can laugh and have a good time. But if I would have spent the morning pulling flowers then I would have had an even worse talk tonight. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You're like, can I get an amen? Amen. Yes. The problem that we have is limiting our ministry opportunities so that where we minister is the most effective that we can minister. In a very foundational book for me called Sacred Chaos, the author says, sometimes we need to say no to good things in order to leave space for the best things. Sometimes we need to say no to ministry opportunities so that we can leave room for the best things. So somebody calls you and says, hey, I need you to minister in this capacity. Two things happen. One is the Holy Spirit saying, nudge, nudge, yes, this is an opportunity for you to minister, and this is where I want you to minister. And one is Satan saying, oh yeah, you have lots of time. You should get involved in this. 
knowing full well that you are maxed out. And if you get involved in one more thing, it's going to be at the detriment of the other things that you're involved in and at the detriment of your family and at the detriment of your marriage. And so because we're involved in the max number of things doesn't mean that we are doing the most effective ministry that we can. And the disciples know that their ministry is to preach the word and advance the kingdom of God through the preaching of the word. And yes, to serve these individuals by providing them with food is extremely important, but it is going to be at the detriment of what they are truly called to. So please, hear me, hear me on this. And you're like, Eric, isn't your job volunteer ministry recruitment? Yes, that is part of my job. And you're telling us we should volunteer less. Yes. That is the most backwards thing that you could ever do. No, it's not. You know, this idea of being so busy is such a sham. The level of busyness that exists in our lives doesn't tell us how effective we are or how important we are or what great people we are. Satan has used the busyness that exists in our culture to pull us away from the best things that exist for us. And if we said no to more things, we could say yes to the best things. And so when the Holy Spirit prompts you to do something in ministry, oftentimes it's a move away from something else. It's not an addition to. So as we look at this passage, we see the disciples making this monumental decision to do less so that they can do more. What I will say is the Holy Spirit doesn't ever say, you know what, you can go ahead and take a long break from ministry. That doesn't happen. (laughs) Our lives are ministry. So our break from ministry happens when we die. What the Holy Spirit does is convicts us about being overly taxed and giving the best that we have into the ministry that we're doing. And sometimes that ministry, the most effective, important ministry that we should be doing is within the walls of our home to our spouses and to our kids. And if we're always at church, the church building, serving at the detriment of our spouse or our kids, we're not doing the most effective ministry that we should be doing. Okay, so we've gotten through three verses in 24 minutes, 25 minutes. You're like, yeah, I thought Tom wasn't here. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word, meaning the preaching of the Word. And so they devote, they they pull together these seven individuals who are going to do this ministry of taking care of the widows and making sure they get exactly what they need. One of them being Stephen, who is a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Notice that he is a clear disciple of Jesus Christ. He is full of faith and the Holy Spirit. 
It's not just he's another warm body filling a place or a space. He is a committed follower of Jesus. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. A couple interesting things going here. We see the emphasis on this phrase, the word of God, meaning the preaching of God's word, the teachings of Jesus. We see a a marker of growth, which we're going to see five more of those throughout the book of Acts, uh, 931, 1224, 65, 1920, and 28, 30 through 31, where Luke gives us this marker of the increasing uh, number and this growth. Third thing, where is the multiplication happening? In Jerusalem. At this point, everything is focused around Jerusalem. Now, uh, spoiler alert, after the death of Stephen, it's this spreading out of the ministry to the surrounding areas. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Again, we ask, how long has it been? Has it been a week? Has it been a month? How long has Stephen been doing this ministry? Well, it's obviously been a period of time, so much so that he has gained notoriety within the city of Jerusalem, and people are taking notice to the point where they don't like what he is doing. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, or the people who used to be slaves or whose parents were slaves, freedmen, um, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. (laughs) I love this next line. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So, to translate that differently, and he clowned on all of them because they were not that smart. Let me rephrase that. That's what I would say to the youth, but I'm not with the youth. Uh, And he made them look silly, for their intelligence was lacking. Stephen was a wise man, not a wise guy, a wise man, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. What happens when somebody makes you look silly? You get angry. So in this uh, debate battle that Stephen has with these other people, he makes them look ridiculous. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. If you remember last week, we were in the Sanhedrin, or they were in the Sanhedrin. In the text, we were in the Sanhedrin. We're back in the Sanhedrin as these people have stirred up false witnesses about what Stephen is teaching. Basically what they've done is they are taking his words and twisting them ever so slightly so that he will be condemned in front of the Jewish powers. And what are the three things that they are accusing him of? These are important. They're accusing him about making claims against Moses, which is a 
big time no-no. You can't make uh, claims against Moses, who the Jews obviously held up to very high esteem. You cannot make claims against the temple, which he is, again, they're twisting his words of what he said when he's quoting Jesus. Remember, Jesus says in John that I will, this uh, temple will be destroyed and in three days it will be rebuilt. Uh, when he was talking about his, himself, his body. In other times, Jesus in Mark makes these claims about the temple and how the temple is a temporary uh, place. So they're saying when he quotes Jesus, they're like, see, he's making accusations, basically terroristic threats against the temple. Well, the temple, to all of these people that are at the Sanhedrin that work there, is their way of life. So in essence, Stephen is, they're, they're claiming that Stephen is telling them that their way of life, their place of business, the temple, is going to be destroyed. So attacking Moses, attacking the temple, and then attacking the law. The big three things that you don't mess with when talking about uh, the Jewish faith. But again, they're making all of this up, false accusations. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Interesting that he has this radiance about his face, which harkens back to Moses when he was on Mount Sinai coming down with the tablets, also after the transfiguration. And when we see this idea of glowing or angelic-looking faces. I don't think it had anything to do with the skin products that he chose to use that morning when he didn't take a shower. And the high priest, more than likely, the high priest at this time is Caiaphas, so it's um, before the year 36, or I should say uh, prior to 36, because Caiaphas was the high priest until 36. What are these, uh, are these things so? And so then we buckle up into Stephen's uh, miraculous speech. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The glory of the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Now he's going to make four references to four key players within the nation of Israel. This is basically the cliffs notes of the history of Judaism. So if you've ever wondered, I just wish I knew more about the history of Judaism and I'm really not feeling reading the whole Old Testament. Um, Here it is. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, who had many sons. Many sons had... No, that's not in the text either. Uh, When he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him, Moses... From there into this land, or Abraham, sorry, in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge that nation they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. 
And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, okay, key player number two, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all, all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob to his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver and the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But at the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed... Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are my brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard they're groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in a bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this, Moses, who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands, but God turned away and gave them over to the worship, the host of heaven. 
as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witnesses in the wilderness just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Oh, what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and, the ground, and they ground their teeth at him. Sometimes there's passages that you need to read in the totality of one sitting, and this gives us that volume of what he was trying to say. So he attacks, right, Moses, which then he goes on in his speech, the claim is that he is diminishing the value of Moses, and then he goes on in his speech and he spends the majority of his time talking about the 120 years of Moses' life, saying, I have no qualms with who Moses is. Look at who Moses is and look at how our people responded to God's use of Moses. And he talks about the law and the fact that he is not saying anything negative about the law. And then this concept of the temple. And the reason why he points out these key events in the nation of Israel is because he's trying to communicate to the Sanhedrin that God is not limited by space. That God is not confined or defined by any structure that exists on the earth. He talks about Abraham and how God goes to Abraham in a foreign land and he talks about Moses and Moses being in this foreign land and how this holy ground is someplace randomly in the desert. And then he talks about David and Solomon in this temple that that Solomon is supposed to build or Solomon does build. And the fact that God is not defined or confined by any space here on this earth. In essence, what he's saying, you Sanhedrin that think that the temple is where God resides, you could not be further from the truth. And here is the historical basis for what I have told you. So all of these claims that you have made against me are false. And here is my proof. The challenge is, he quotes the Old Testament, and he says, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so. 
In essence, what he is saying is, look at all of these things that God has done and tried to draw us in as a people, and we continued to fail and to fail and to fail. And the prophets, in this one sentence, you know, all these prophets are rejected. And you are repeating the same pattern by not listening to what we are telling you of who Jesus is. You stiff-necked people. And as soon as I read that, I think of all of the times uh, when I was growing up and my dad would grab me by the neck. I love that some of you are laughing because you know what I'm talking about. And would turn my head because my neck was so stiff and I wasn't going to give in to what he was trying to communicate to me. It wasn't that these people needed chiropractic care, it was that they were so stubborn and stiff-necked that they were unwilling to turn and look at the things that God wanted them to see. If you've ever injured your neck and had to have a neck brace, and if you have to look to the left, you turn your whole body, you don't really want to look to the left. And so these people living this whole, all of their lives is not wanting to look anywhere but what's right in front of them they are stiff-necked, and they resist the Holy Spirit. Which is a terrifying thing to think about. They resist the movement of the Holy Spirit in their lives. All the times there's been this prompting of the Holy Spirit that they are to acknowledge who Jesus is, and they are resisting. You know, we're going through the book of Mark in... Uh, with the youth and the, the classic verse of blaspheming the Holy Spirit is going to come up. And we're like, oh, what is, what is that? That is this. It's what the Israelites have done for their whole lives, disregarding the prompting of the Holy Spirit and acknowledging who Jesus is. And Stephen just lays it out there. And the people were not really happy. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So just, I mean, picture this. Like, he is in enemy territory. He knows who these people are. He knows what these people can do. And yet he has boldly proclaimed exactly what God has called him to proclaim with truth and with clarity. And he is not afraid about what is going to happen. The people are enraged and they are ready to kill him. And Stephen looks up and he sees this image of Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God. And for the, for the most part, we, we read this phrase and we're like, yeah, big deal. But in all of these other instances, after Jesus is resurrected, he is seated at the right hand of God. Meaning it is finished, it is done, he doesn't have to work, he's in his, lazy, well, he's in his throne chair, There's nothing left to do. And then Stephen sees Jesus standing, waiting to embrace him. That Jesus is ready to embrace Stephen 
because of what he has done for the advancement of the kingdom of God. I mean, Stephen doesn't care what happens next. He's like, whatever happens next, like, I've won. (laughs) But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They stopped their ears. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen knows that going to the Sanhedrin is not a good thing for his health and well-being. And what does he do? He doesn't shirk away from the responsibility. He doesn't bend a knee to the authorities. He boldly proclaims who God is to all of these people. And we ask, does Stephen know that he's going to be stoned? Does Stephen know what could happen to him? Stephen doesn't care. Stephen doesn't care what's going to come out of this to his physical body because he knows that he has one ministry to do, and that is to effectively deliver the Word of God to these people no matter what their response is. And if we were in a different cultural context, we would be like, yeah, amen, all across the board. Stephen testifies with boldness and with clarity, knowing full well that what happens next doesn't matter. What happens next pales in comparison to the vision of Jesus Christ standing, waiting for him to show up. And I know a few weeks ago, Tom went, I mean, full tilt on faith stories. And some of you are like, eh, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to get up in front of people. It's, it's hard to share these things. It's hard to tell people about what God has done in my life. You're not going to die. Like, even if you pass out, we have about a dozen first responders and probably another dozen doctors that will heal you. You're not going to die. Well, I know, but it's embarrassing. I'm not sure what I would say. We are called to boldly proclaim what Jesus Christ has done in our lives no matter what the consequence. No matter what the cost, no matter what the consequence, that is what we are called to do. To advance the kingdom of God through the preaching of the word and the sharing of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
no matter what the cost. And the cost for us who live in the United States of America is pretty much non-existent. It's harder to be an eighth grader and go to school every day than it is for us as adults to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with anyone we come in contact with. And all of us have been eighth graders at one point, and we know exactly what that looks like. And Mr. Anderson, if he was more Pentecostal, would be like, can I get an amen? Stephen doesn't care because what he receives pales in comparison to anything that is going to happen to him because he knows what he is called to do and that is to testify to what God has done throughout history. And that is exactly what we are called to do. No matter what the cost, and the cost is basically non-existent. And then he follows all of this up as he is literally dying. His last words are, God, forgive them. They don't even understand what they're doing. Have you ever had someone cut you off in traffic? I could never forgive that person. It begs the question, Stephen is dying. He is being stoned to death. And his last thought is, and by the way, Father, don't hold them accountable for the actions that they have just done to me. What? And yet, we talk about, I don't know if I can forgive that person for what they've done. Really? Stephen is being killed and he is forgiving the person and persons that have just killed him. Let's think about that. Go to your groups. <laughs> 